0: First John five beginning in verse six, says, "This is he referring to Jesus who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water but by water and blood. and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. for there are three that bear witness in heaven the Father the Word and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself, He who does not believe God has made him a liar because because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And Father, help us now as we continue in our worship by opening the word of God. As always, we pray that your spirit would speak to us through what your spirit has spoken in this recorded record of your written word. Lord, bless The word of God this morning, may we hear the voice of your spirit speaking things to each and every one of our hearts, and we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, a witness testifying in a courtroom to their firsthand experience or firsthand knowledge or awareness is a powerful testimony to prove and assure that which is factual, to make sure that we have the truth and accurate understanding. It helps to prove what is true and brings assurance that strengthens the facts on any situation or any matter. Well, true Christianity was under attack by false teachers, kind of like we might say a prosecuting attorney. And these false teachers, like a prosecuting attorney, were attacking Christianity, and John, like a wise, spirit-led defense attorney, has been defending what biblical Christianity really is. And as John has been doing that in this letter we've been looking at together, he now at this point, as we come to this section, brings forth many witnesses to testify to the truth to be able to give testimony and really shore up the case of what biblical Christianity really is. Notice, as we read this morning, we see repeated references. In fact, if you want to take account, there are seven of them, seven repeated uh, references to this term witness or bearing witness. There are also repeated references here as well to testified, or we see giving testimony. And John says in this section here, these various witnesses and their given testimonies, he says, all agree as one unified declaration of that which is true. And he says, so that you may believe. In other words, you almost sense John here kind of being led by God with his closing argument saying, look, let me bring these final witnesses to the table hear their testimony, all their testimonies agree, it could not be more evident with this many testimonies of the truth that this is what is right and factual, and this is the truth. And John, now as he comes to this section, wants us to know the truth because God wants us to rest assured and to not question what is true of spiritual things or of his son Jesus Christ. God doesn't want us to have... Confusion or to question that which is true and that which is not. Now, remember in the last section, as John's kind of wrapping up this letter now, he's, I said last week as we began chapter five, he's reinforcing some of the same truths that he's already talked about in this letter. And again, kind of like a closing argument in a court case, he's coming back to the facts and he's just re emphasizing things he's already said. And remember, much of John's communication in 1 John is basically to do what he can to kind of minimize and protect the harm of spiritual deception, the lies that false teachers in that day were spreading among the church, and John being concerned about this as an aged apostle, knowing his time is short, he's concerned because these false teachers were diminishing as well as not just diminishing, but disregarding and denying who Jesus Christ really was. And so John writes this letter with that concern here that we might have a real experience with God, not experience false spirituality and be misguided in any way. And the last thing John just declared, we saw in our time together last time, that those who will ultimately overcome this world and all things spiritually He said, look at it in verse 5, our last verse from last week. He who overcomes the world is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, that he is Christ the Savior, John said last time. And John now wants to speak with certainty more of who Jesus of Nazareth really is and really was, the Son of God, the Savior, the Christ the Messiah whom God sent as he prophesied about. Look with me as he goes on in verse six, referring to Jesus, the son of God from verse five. He says, verse six, this is he, he says, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit, John says, who bears witness Because the Spirit is truth. So it's very evident here that John is seeking to assure with evidence that Jesus was indeed the Son of God sent into the world as a man. Because he was the predicted Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, whom God said he would send into the world at a set time to be a deliverer. Now, again, remember, we've talked about early in our study in 1 John, these false teachers, one of the things they were propagating was a heresy called Gnosticism. And to sum up in a very simple way, Gnosticism, this false teaching, was diminishing and denying who Jesus truly was. There were some sects among Gnosticism that were saying that Jesus was just a phantom spirit. And he was just this phantom spirit that went around. He had no physical human body. He wasn't a man because anything that was physical was considered evil. And only ethereal and spiritual things were okay. And so they were denying the fact that Jesus literally was a man living in the flesh. And some say he just was the the phantom Christ spirit for a time. Others, on the other side, were teaching another thing that was heretical, and they were saying this, that Jesus was just a man. He was a good man, but at a certain point, particularly they would say at his water baptism, the Christ Spirit came upon him, and the Spirit of Christ, the Messiah, rested upon this good man, Jesus, but then at his death, the Christ Spirit then departed from him which was basically denying the deity of Jesus, that he was God. And look, if you diminish or deny the deity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus, that's heresy. Both are essential to who the Bible teaches the biblical Jesus truly is. God's word teaches that Jesus was the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus, being eternally existent there in heaven forever with God the Father at a set time in history to fulfill God's plan of salvation, became the Savior as the Son of God, remaining divine, remaining God, that he added a second nature unto himself, a human nature. And remaining God, he added another nature, a human nature, becoming man to save mankind in this world from their sin. And we understand the way that that happened. The Bible teaches that God the Father miraculously deposited the life of his son into the womb of a virgin woman. And she miraculously conceived and it allowed Jesus, therefore, to be born with God the Father as his one parent, with Mary the Virgin as his human parent. And therefore, he could be born both fully God and fully man at the exact same time, the God-man. And that is how he entered into this world. God became flesh or became a man dwelt among us to reveal God and to rescue mankind. And as Jesus entered into this world, it was to restore sinful man back into relationship with holy God to spare us from what our sins deserve, eternal judgment, and to reconcile us into a relationship with God. And this is how Jesus, the son of God, the Bible says, was sent and entered into this world. As the Christ. Now, to refute this heresy that Jesus was just a phantom spirit moving around, or that he was a man who the Christ spirit just came upon for a period of time, John here emphasizes that Jesus Christ, he says here in verse 6, Jesus the Christ, notice he says, did not only come by water, but then he says two times, repetitiously, twice he says in our verse here, that he came not just by water, but by water and by blood. Now, what is meant by John as he's trying to say this? Because he's trying to refute that Gnostic heresy. What he is trying to do here is to emphasize the fact that Jesus was indeed God who became man and lived as the God-man among us on this earth. Some see what John's referring to here as that he came by water and by blood as referring to Jesus' entrance into and his departure from this earth. And if we think that through just in simplicity, water is the fluid of physical birth and natural life, right? It's the breaking of the water that brings about the delivery of a child. And so water is the fluid of birth. It's the fluid of natural birth. And blood is the fluid, if you would, you might say of death. That is when the human heart stops beating and pumping blood through the body or when someone is wounded and they bleed to a point to where they die, blood is the fluid of death. So you have the fluid of blood and the fluid of death and the indication being the initiation and the culmination of Jesus' human life as God. In other words, emphasizing that Jesus was God, but he also born and died as a man. He was God who was born as a man and then died as a man. And to emphasize this reality, John makes this indication, proving again that he's the perfect mediator between God and man, the one who came as God and took upon himself a human body. Now, others think this reference to the water here could perhaps be a reference to Jesus' baptism, his water baptism. And there are those who hold that conviction that that's what John was referring to here by the water. That initiated, of course, Jesus' public ministry. And that could be a possibility as well, because remember, when Jesus was baptized as a man and began his public ministry, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 3, it says there that the heavens parted, remember? And as the heavens departed, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus to anoint him for his public ministry. And it says that the Father spoke from heaven, saying, This is my Son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. And at that moment, what was heaven doing? God the Father was validating, This is my eternal Son. This is the Son of God. He's not just a man. He was born as a man, but this is my eternal Son from heaven, In whom I am well pleased. So again, that validated the fact that Jesus, as a man, was indeed God on earth. And then, of course, his blood, as I said, represents his shed blood on the cross. And the fact that that was the culmination or conclusion of his work. So you still kind of have that same idea. Remember when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And so what John's trying to do is to indicate the initiation of Jesus' entry into this world, his culmination, his departure from this world, proved very clearly that he was indeed God dwelling in a physical body, living as a man. And these things verified with strong testimony to the witness of who Jesus was as the Christ in his redemptive ministry, that he was the one sent by God to reconcile sinful man and sinful humanity to holy God. That's why when Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says there is one God, and one mediator between mankind and God. And he says it's the man, Christ Jesus. That is, this one God found a way to reconcile human beings back to himself in relationship. And the way to do that was to send a human being, being in touch with divinity and in touch with humanity fully, to do what was necessary to reconcile you and I, as sinful people, back into a relationship with holy God. And that's who Jesus was and who he came to be. That's why he came both by water and blood, which witness to that very thing. And John adds here in verse six, in the end of verse six, and it is the spirit, that is the spirit of God, he says, who bears witness because the spirit, John says, is truth. So it's the spirit of God who gives that credible personal witness to what is true of Jesus Christ. Notice John doesn't say here that he is the spirit of truth. He simply says the spirit is truth. In other words, the spirit of God is the standard of truth. Not what people say, not what ideas conveyed by men who are fractured and sinful and imperfect, not what faulty men communicate. The reference point of truth is God and God's spirit. And so he says, the Spirit is the one who gives us truth. Remember, Jesus referring to the Holy Spirit called him the helper, and he also called him the Spirit of truth. And speaking of the Holy Spirit's ministry, Jesus said, John 15, when the helper whom I shall send you from the Father comes, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come, and that if we want to know the truth, we have to rely on the Holy Spirit, not any human spirit, to give us the truth about who Jesus really is and was. He is the greatest witness to help us know and believe what's true of Jesus, because he's been eternally existent together there in heaven with God the Father and God the Son as God the Holy Spirit. And so he is the greatest witness to testify that Jesus is indeed the son of God, that he is indeed the Christ, the savior sent to restore humanity. Now, carrying on with his efforts here to establish a solid base of witnesses to validate what is true, to bear testimony to the truth, to give assurance to us, John then goes on verse seven to say, for there are three that bear witness in heaven the Father, the Word, which we know is a title of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three, John also says, agree as one. Now, let me briefly just say, if some of you have a different translation that I'm using, the New King James, and you've been panicking the first few minutes of the Bible study going, where's that at? Where's that at? Oh, my goodness. Let me just briefly say, as we're doing a collective Bible study, if you have a modern translation, a more modern translation, I utilize the New King James to teach from, if you have a more modern translation, you clearly probably notice that that phrase, a good portion of it, does not exist in the translation that you're utilizing of the Bible. And the reason is that modern translators think that it does not belong. And the phrase that I'm referring to that they have retracted out here because they think it does not belong is this phrase. There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And I can tell you in advance, there are very technical disputes among New Testament scholars, highly educated men in theology that go round and round over this. Let me begin by saying, though I study scripture as a life practice, I am not a scholar. And quite frankly, to tell you the truth, let me just say I got saved. I got called by the Spirit of God to be a pastor, teacher. I obeyed the Lord in that. But any time and all times, you should always study to show yourself approved and be a Berean and come to your own conclusions. You should never take at, at straight face value anything I or any pastor, teacher tells you. And let me also just say this: I prefer not to, and you can be free to disagree. Spend my time, that's precious and limited, in trying to hear from the Word of God important, helpful things to live out a faithful Christian life, to be strengthened spiritually in Christ, using my time on an occasion like this to give technical evidence of both sides of a dispute over such a matter in one section in the New Testament... Uh, Nor do I really want to present all this evidence back and forth as well and create a situation where as the end result of that, you leave this place uh, kind of finding yourself questioning other passages in the New Testament. I quite honestly don't think anything really fruitful comes out of that. I can tell you this very briefly. My personal conviction, it's one of the reasons why I do use the New King James Version, I do think the phrase does belong. Personally, I do accept that it should be there, and for simple reason, because first of all, it's a phrase that we find referred to multiple times among early church fathers as far back as the two and 300s of A.D. And so we find early church fathers in writings outside of the Bible referring to this phrase that we do have here. Secondly, those who study Greek and are Greek scholars, of which I'm not, I just tell you what they say. Those who study Greek and are Greek scholars say to remove that phrase and take it out disrupts the flow grammatically of the Greek language. But to leave the phrase in, the Greek grammar flows in a more proper way in how the sentence structure reads. And thirdly, simply at the end of the day, it is a strong declaration of the Trinity, which is taught elsewhere in the Word of God and is a fundamental truth of important biblical Christianity, as well as which is part of what the Gnostic heresy was trying to dilute and disrupt the teaching of the Trinity. So, for those reasons alone, and the fact that the phrase further reinforces the witness and testimony of what is true of God, that He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. While I teach this section, or at least these verses briefly, if you choose to disagree, you probably all have cell phones, you can check your email for a moment or two, and come back at verse 9. Now, I'm just teasing, of course, but let me just read it again, and, because I believe it's there, and expound upon what it's conveying. For there are three that bear witness, John says, verse 7, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, they agree, and there are three that bear witness on the earth. The Spirit of God, the water, and the blood, and these three, he says, agree as one. So notice John's clearly building a case to witness and testify to this same truth that many witnesses, John says here, both in heaven and in earth, they all agree. Those who are witnesses in heaven and heaven's courtroom, those who are witnesses on the earth giving testimony, he says they all agree. With the same thing. In fact, he says two times in our verses here that these three are one. He says it of the witnesses in heaven, and he says it of the witnesses on earth that these three all agree as one. In other words, all three, they are telling their testimony, and all their testimonies align. They all say the same thing. They may be saying it in different ways and different times, but he's saying all three witnesses giving testimony are one and the same. They're all conveying the exact same view. Now, look, that indicates credibility that you're more than likely getting the truth. When you have multiple witnesses saying the exact same thing and all their testimonies agree, that starts to build a pretty clear, solid case, okay, they're all saying the same thing, even in a human court, that would hold up to coming to a proper conclusion, and here, John is no doubt bringing this up to say, look, there are three witnesses in heaven and three witnesses on earth, and they all agree saying the same thing. Now, look, I would be first to say, two people can collude, and two people can But when you add a third person into the mix, all of a sudden, it reinforces with a greater degree, okay, that's three people now all saying the same thing. Two people can kind of get together and include and this and that, but, but when you add a third person, people just aren't smart enough to all keep track of and say the same thing. John's saying there's three in heaven, they all agree, and there's three on earth, and they all agree. In essence, John is saying there are six in heaven and earth, and they all agree. All six of them are saying the same thing about who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God, and that he is indeed the Christ, and all three of these witnesses are conveying that same thing. He says, in heaven, you have the three witnesses, God the Father, saying what is true of his Son, and he's a solid witness. He's been with his Son from eternity past. Whenever it began, he can validate, I know who my Son is. He's the Son of God. He's the Christ. And then you have the Word, which is the title that speaks of Jesus, or the revelation of God. And Jesus can testify who he is confidently, Because he knows who he is, that he's the son of God and that he's the Christ and the savior. And then you have the spirit bearing witness accurately to who Jesus is. And of course, here in this statement, in these verses here, we have a very beautiful reference to the Trinity within the word of God. And let me just say this regarding the Trinity. You won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, but the teaching of a triune God where we develop the word Trinity is weaved all throughout the word of God. And here is another place just reinforcing this same concept. One God manifest in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Do we wrap our minds around it logically, completely? I don't know if we ever can, but the Bible teaches one God manifest in three persons. Equally God working in unison, all three bearing witness, assuring who Jesus is, the Son of God. And there is no confusion in the courtroom of heaven among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who Jesus is. It's a closed case. Their witness is sure of that. And yet God also has left substantial witness notice on the earth, John says here, to bear witness. And all three of the earthly witnesses, they agree and say the exact same thing. He says, first of all, the Spirit of God bears witness on earth to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. The very Spirit of God himself, his ministry amongst us on the earth, the Spirit of God is the one who's speaking to unsaved people every day still, convincing them not only of their lost condition and their sinful need, but convincing them that Jesus Christ is the solution. He's convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come, and it's the Spirit of God convincing people Jesus is the Savior. You need to be saved, and he's the only one to be saved. And so the Spirit is bearing witness to the unsaved, and the Spirit of God among the church is who continues to bear witness to us through the Word of God and through the ministry of his Spirit, who Jesus is, putting our attention upon him, And then John says, not just as the spirit bearing witness to Jesus on earth, but notice there's also the earthly testimony. He says there in verse eight, there's also the earthly testimony beyond the spirit of the water and the blood. And these three also agreeing together of who Jesus is. Now, interesting here, he comes back to this idea of the water and the blood. I believe as he talks about the earthly testimony of the water and the blood bearing witness to who Jesus is, is perhaps a reminder and a reference to the two new testament ordinances that we are commanded to observe as the church as christians i believe the water and the testimony or witness of the water is a reference to the waters of baptism that every time we baptize an individual christian that is bearing witness to who jesus is that is a testimony Every time we baptize a person in water publicly who is saying, I have been saved by Jesus Christ, I believe who he is, we are giving public witness and strong testimony on earth through the water of baptism that Jesus changes lives, that Jesus is real, that he forgives sins, that he revolutionizes people who choose to follow him and let him take over their life. And for that reason, what a wonderful thing and how much it must please God when someone chooses to be water baptized as a Christian. Because God says, thank you. Thank you for bearing witness. Thank you for not being ashamed. Thank you for being willing to humble yourself, to look nice before you went under the water and come back up looking like an absolute radical wet mess. And your hair is all over and snot's running out your nose and your mascara's running. And God says, thank you. Thank you that you'd be willing to do that. Why? Well, Jesus was willing to hang on a cross naked and be beaten and spit on and mocked as the son of God. And for us to choose to say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll identify with Jesus publicly. I'm willing to do that to humble myself. And if that's what pleases and, and that's what I'm commanded to do, I want to do that. I'll be a witness for Jesus. I'll say it's true. I'll say it's happened inside of my heart. I'll say I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm a part of this family of God and it's a wonderful witness, the water on the earth. And when he speaks here of the blood, I think perhaps it's a reference then to the other thing that we're called to do as the New Testament church as an ordinance was to partake of communion. And every time we as a church collectively partake of communion, what are we doing? Jesus said, that when you take this bread, do it in remembrance of my broken body. And he said, when you take the cup, this cup is a reminder of what? My blood. It's a reminder of my blood, of my death. And every time we partake of communion together as God's people, we are publicly giving testimony and witness to the truth of who Jesus is. He's the son of God, the savior who died and shed his blood on the cross for our sins. And we're giving public testimony of that on this earth. That's why first Corinthians 11 says, whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. We're making a proclamation like a witness. We're giving testimony on the earth that Jesus is indeed real. He's the son of God. He's the answer for the human soul. And because he came and shed his blood, That is the answer for the forgiveness of our sins and to get us ready for when we die and when we depart that we can know our eternal destiny. John goes on to say, verse 9, and if we receive, notice he says, the witness of men, that is the testimony of human beings, the witness of God, he says, is greater. So if we have a credible source as a person to give us a solid testimony, in a courtroom, or about a particular matter, and we believe people, and if we're willing to believe human beings on a particular subject, or a matter, or their eyewitness account, or their factual understanding of a particular situation, and he says, if we're willing to accept the testimony of humans, and we do, do we not? We do it in our court system. We do it in everyday life. Somebody gives testimony, or they witness about a subject, and we... Yeah, and and we just, we we choose to believe them. That sounds credible. They seem solid, and and we choose the witness of men. And, And he says, look, if you're going to take the witness of men, he builds a case. He says, how much greater is the witness of God? John's saying, you're telling me that we'll believe people, but we're not willing to believe what God says? God's own witness, God's own testimony. Why? Because God is a much greater witness. And see, here's the thing. God is always giving witness. God is always speaking. The issue with humanity is, though God is always speaking and he's always giving testimony and communicating, the age-long dilemma of humanity is whether or not we want to listen, whether we're willing to listen. I can tell you, there's never been a time in my life where I needed to know something that God went silent on the radar and wasn't speaking to me at some point about it, that even if I trace back afterwards, that I knew God was speaking to me and I just was choosing not to listen. God's faithful to speak to us. God is always speaking, he is, especially when it's in regards to what's spiritual and eternal and what really matters. And more than that, God is such a great witness, much greater witness than men. God's perfect. Unlike human beings, look, the bottom line is human beings can all from time to time mislead people, whether consciously misleading people, people lie, or people can just not have all the facts. People can communicate in ways where they mislead or they misdirect. That's never going to happen with God. The Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. He can't even lie if he wants to. It's not just that he won't. He says it's impossible for him to. So God is a much greater witness because he knows all the facts, he knows the whole story, and he's a reliable witness, which means if God says something, we should take it. We should have absolute confidence because God is the one attesting to that thing. Not only the fact that God cares so much more, he's never going to mislead us. He never has some ill intent. He, you know, unlike people, God doesn't manipulate people. God doesn't work people, and I've met some human beings, even among the church. They know how to work people. God doesn't work people. God speaks the truth, and he allows people to come to their own conclusions, but God always speaks the truth. You're never getting a lie when God's talking. He communicates the truth. He speaks to us what we need to know, and we would be wise, quite honestly, as human beings, to put a little less stock in listening to people and what people say and put a lot more emphasis upon, I'm going to trust what God says and to rest assured that he is indeed the greatest witness. John says of God's witness, which is much greater, this is the witness of God. What does God like to witness and testify about? He testifies of his son. He testifies of his son. It speaks of what God's already done and what he keeps doing. What's God already done? He's given strong testimony and witness of his son. Again, even if we think of two accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' life, at Jesus' baptism, what happened? The father testified of his son. At Jesus' baptism, the father parted the heavens and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then at Jesus' transfiguration, again, it says that the father spoke from heaven, interrupted things again, and said, in case you missed it at the baptism or you weren't there, this is my beloved son. And then he said, hear him. In other words, listen to him. Listen to Jesus, God the Father was saying. Don't listen, to, listen to Jesus. Take him as the one that you listen to. That's what God con- did and what God continues to do to this day on this earth because God is the God who changes not. And so what is the primary message that God the Father is always trying to witness and to testify to people about? Jesus. That is the main thing that God is always trying to communicate on this earth to human beings about. He is always trying to speak to me, always trying to speak to you about his son, about Jesus, to put our focus on Jesus. When God is speaking to us, he's always trying to get our attention on Jesus. Why? Because that's the greatest need in all of our lives. And when God speaks through me or God speaks through you, if he wants to use our voice to testify on this earth, the most important thing that God wants to speak through us is things about Jesus. Why? Because that's what people need. Have you ever noticed sometimes you try and help people and talk to people and this and that, and you realize like, I I can't solve your problems, but I know someone who can and so the greatest thing that we can do on top of offering some counsel and helping this and that way is to ultimately tell people about Jesus and talk to people about Jesus and explain to them what Jesus can do and that if they would follow Jesus and to say to them, look, I know it seems dark, and you're, but Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he said, if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I know right now you feel like you're in the dark and you say, I don't know where to go. I just feel like I'm in the dark. I do too sometimes. There is one who's the light of the world. And he said, if you'll just follow him, that you won't walk in darkness, you'll have the light of everyday life. What a wonderful thing. I don't have the answers, but I know someone who does. And to just point them to Jesus. If you'll just follow Jesus, I can assure you this, He will give you the light to walk and to navigate and to work through things. He's a great savior, and he's a wonderful shepherd on top of that. And when God is working, folks, the major focus is going to be upon his son. Pointing people to his son, connecting people to his son, getting people's attention on his son. Not human beings, not human solutions, but getting their eyes on the Lord. John says, verse 10, carrying on, he who believes in the Son of God has this witness, now notice this phrase, in himself. In himself, the witness in himself, the one who believes in Jesus. One of the glorious benefits of being a child of God, as we've seen in our study in John, first John here, is God's given his spirit to live inside of us. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells and lives within us when we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And we continually hear, now he says, an inner witness, the internal witness of God's Spirit speaking to us continually about Jesus, about our salvation through Jesus, about forgiveness available through Jesus for when we fail and make mistakes. He continues to speak to us about love for Jesus, the love we should have for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for us. He continues to speak to us about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and the power of Jesus to help us. The believer, the Bible teaches, has this internal witness inside of us. Romans chapter eight says it this way. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out from within Abba Father. And then he says this, listen. Listen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. How wonderful within the Spirit of God bearing witness and testimony to our inward human spirit that we as Christians are God's child and that we have an eternal inheritance. And do you know why that's so precious and important? Because as we journey through this life and face this challenge and that hardship and that difficulty, that despite what's happening circumstantially, despite what I'm feeling on that given day or what you're thinking in that given situation or what struggle you're going through, you can hear the voice of God reassuring you in your heart, listen, you're my child. And in the end, there's an eternal inheritance you're going to be with me and with those who've gone before you. And, and, and you're coming home to glory. You hang in there, keep going. I know the earthly journey is hard. Remember Jesus we talked about last week said, in this world, you will have tribulation, trials, hardships, afflictions, temptations. But he says, but you take heart, be encouraged. I've overcome the world. And one day you're going to overcome it with me because you're a child of God. And to have the Holy Spirit within bearing witness, John says, to this testimony, assuring our hearts of what we believe to be true, this witness within ourselves that we receive. He then goes on, verse 10, to say, and he who does not believe, now here's the other side, who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. So notice, John says on the other side to refuse to believe God and the testimony he speaks about his son, is very destructive and quite arrogant for the human heart. In fact, John goes so far here to say rejecting God's voice and testimony by not believing and choosing to say, I'm not believing that, I refuse to believe that. He's saying you're not just rejecting what's best for you, but John says here you're actually insulting God's spirit of grace. He says that unbelief in the human heart is equivalent to, look what he says right there in the verse, it's equivalent to calling God what? a liar. It's not just trivial unbelief. John says it's equivalent to calling God a liar to his face. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty intense thing. It's basically, John says, like as a human being saying, I'm right as a human, God's a liar. And what God says is a lie. I mean, that's just all a lie and God's a deceiver. Now, let me just say, as you can tell, I'm not a real big man. There are certain people, rightly so, it would not be wise for me, and I probably should be rightly intimidated to say, You're a liar, man. Because <laughs> it's saying you're a grasshopper. <laughs> right? Now, as human beings, we may not say something offensive to a human being. Can you imagine? The Bible says the inhabitants of the earth were like grasshoppers to God. Here we are, this little tiny speck of dust on this ball of dirt, of all these galaxies that an eternal God created and controls, and as a little human being pointing your little finger at God and saying, you're a liar. You're a li-. It's all lies. That's pretty cavalier. It's pretty cavalier to do that as a human being. The arrogancy, the hard-heartedness, the Bible says there is coming a day when it will be evident to every human being that God is true and every man is a liar. The scripture cautions our hearts. If we're calling God a liar and denying what God says to believe in such a way, it'd be really prudent to humble yourself, to get over that human pride and arrogancy and never look God in the face and call him a liar. The Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. The scripture also says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, that our God is a consuming fire, never good to call God a liar. Well, as John concludes verse 11 through 13, it's almost as if he gives an airtight case and testimony about eternal life through Jesus so that no person ever need to wonder, question, and that we could eliminate, listen, folks, we could eliminate this phrase from the human conversation, I think I'm going to heaven. These verses say that phrase should never even come up in human conversation. It's not necessary. Look what John says, verse 11, follow his reasoning. And this is the testimony that God has given as a gift, God has given it as a gift, us eternal life, age-abiding life to be in God's presence forever, and this life is in his Son. Here is accurate, reliable testimony from heaven's throne of judgment on the subject of eternal life. And understand when the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's speaking of experiencing eternal forever life together with the eternal God, being in his presence, the eternal God of heaven, despite all of our sinfulness and our separation from God and the things that we have all done to justly deserve to be punished and have eternal torment forever. That loving God, he says here, verse 11, has what? Given us a gift. He's given us a gift something that's freely available, that we don't have to earn, that we can't earn. He's already giving it as a gracious gift and an offer. And what is that loving gift that God has given? The opportunity to experience eternal life together with him in heaven. And what is that gift and how is it received? He said that gift of eternal life is in, notice the language, in his son. That is in the eternal Son of God. It's found in Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God. The Bible teaches that eternal life is something that is in the Son of God. Again, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 summarizes and says it this way The wages are what we all earn and deserve for our sin is death, not only physical death, but eternal death and separation from God. But here's the good news the gift, free, the gift, of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God offers a gift of eternal life, and the only one who can give us that gift is the eternal Son of God. The one who is from eternity, who possesses eternal life within himself, is able to impart eternal life through Himself. Through his life, he gives us eternal life. The person of Jesus is the one true source of eternal life. So look at verse 12. He who then has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, you cannot get more direct and clear than that is. The Bible makes it evident. If eternal life is only found and received through Jesus... Those who possess Jesus within their life as Savior and Lord, who believed upon him, the Bible says you already possess eternal life because you possess the Son of God dwelling within you. So that age-abiding quality of eternal life, it already resides within you. That's why you're so frustrated on the earth, (laughs) because you already have eternal life within your soul. And that's why you feel so out of place and you are longing like a citizen for heaven, because Christ lives in you, so you already have eternal life within you. One day, you're going to get free from this body, and you'll experience the most full and literal experience of the eternal dimension. But you already possess the age-abiding quality of eternal life. Now, John says on the other side of that, the Spirit directing him, those who do not have the Son of God, that is, they don't believe upon Jesus, they have not received him as Savior and Lord, they choose to reject Jesus. Listen, they don't have this eternal life. In other words, God says, and I don't think it's good to call God a liar, God says, despite what a person may say, despite what religious things a person may do or claim, God assures they do not possess eternal life if they do not have my son in their life. They are not going to heaven, God says. They can claim they are, they can think they are, they can think they're working the way, but God says... If they don't have my Son as Savior and Lord and have not received my Son, who is eternal life, into themselves, they're not going to heaven. Jesus said it emphatically in John 14 when they asked him how to get to the Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Boy, Jesus was now reminded I would just say he was honest and cancel culture didn't exist then. His accounts would have been suspended real quick if he was on the earth. But it wouldn't have stopped him. He reached the world without any of that anyway. But it, love speaks the truth. Look, I'm not mad that Jesus said he's the only way. I'm actually pretty glad there is a way. I know who I am, I don't deserve a way. I'm just glad that God was nice enough to provide a way and it's free and it's through his son and he offers it as a gift and that assurance that comes with it. And this is what John wraps up with in verse nine. These things I've written to you who believe. If you're a Christian, John says, I- I've under the spirit written these things for you in the name of the son of God, that you may know, circle that word, know that is assurance for certainty that you have eternal life and that you might then continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Notice, God wants us to know that we have eternal life. Not to question, not to wonder, not to fret. God's word declares we can know for absolute certainty as a fact that we have eternal life and that we are going to heaven if we've believed upon and received his Son. Please notice this, folks. Biblical Christianity is not, I hope so in regards to heaven. Biblical Christianity is, I know I'm going to heaven because of what God says, and God's not a liar. And God said, we can know that we have eternal life, assurance, because it's not based on what we do, right? It's not based on my performance or how well I do, or it's based on what Jesus already did. And I'm just trusting in what he already did And believing that is my access into heaven. And so that is a sealed thing. And it gives us that assurance of eternal life through Jesus. And I don't know about you. In this life, there are so many uncertainties. Are there not? So many uncertainties. So many things that you just never know. But here's the good news. And this is the greatest news for the human soul. There is one thing you can know. For certain. That if you've received humbly jesus christ the savior into your heart and you are relying upon him this one thing you can know and cannot change is your eternal destiny your end and quite honestly as we deal with all the uncertainties that pop up and struggles and hardships i think in some ways that is enough medicine to just get the human soul through another day because i know where i'm going I know in the end it's going to be okay, and to have that blessed certainty. Look, the wisest thing that we can do as people, John says, is to take God's witness, what God has written. Let me encourage you, in a generation we're living in right now, it will revolutionize your life if you choose to believe that what God is written is true, and what everybody's saying in the world a lot of times is a big, fat lie. This is Safety. You believe this is true over any human voice that's rattling off out there you'll be in a good place. Let's